Good morning. If you could please take your seats. William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist, once said, there are four things that we ought to do with the word of God. Admit it as the word of God. Commit it to our hearts and minds. Submit to it. And transmit it to the world. Today we are beginning our month-long series on evangelism. CB and I discussed the need for this series a few months back, and we're very excited to be able to bring these messages to you to help equip you in the area of evangelism. But before we dive into today's text, I think it would be best to teach a bit about what both evangelism and the gospel are. We hear a lot of evangelists proclaiming something at so-called revivals and crusades on television, but is what they are saying, is, is what they are preaching the gospel? So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son. You sent your Son into a sin-sick world to redeem us, to set us free that we might be adopted by you. We thank you for the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you for loving us, that you would send your son to die on the cross, to absorb the wrath that we deserve and to rise from the dead, that we can have or be reconciled to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So what is evangelism? That's my first point today. What is evangelism? A good definition of evangelism is the proclamation of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ with a view of bringing about the reconciliation of the sinner to God the Father through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The proclamation of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ with a view of bringing about the reconciliation of the sinner to God, the Father, through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The word evangelism derives from the Greek noun euangelion, or good news. So evangelism is telling others the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done to save sinners. What is the good news? Is it Jesus wants to be your friend? Is it the news that God is love? Is it the news that God has a wonderful plan for your life? What is the gospel? A couple of years ago, I had the honor to travel to Honduras to teach a class at a pastor's college there. While there and talking to the students of the college, many of whom were pastors themselves but lacked formal training, I noticed that there was a lacking in gospel comprehension. They could not articulate the gospel. They loved Jesus. They loved the word of God. But they could not rightly articulate the gospel. And so with that, we took our first class to learn about what the gospel was and is And the Lord really helped us. So what is the gospel? If we were to proclaim the gospel to someone, whether it be a person in our family, 
in our school, at our workplace, or on the streets, what would we proclaim to them? Well, to begin with, I think it's important that people know that there is a creator. That God has created them and all they see around them in nature. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this creator God is holy in every way. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So this creator who is holy deserves and is worthy of our worship. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So this creator God who is worthy of all worship from his creation is holy. And because he is holy, he must punish sin. Romans 2, 5 through 8. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Why? Because mankind, due to the fall, has become sinful by nature. Psalm 51.5, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So from, conce- from conception, all people everywhere are alienated from God, hostile to God, and subject to the wrath of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you were once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God in his love for his creation sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to us. Fully God, fully man. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. First Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And this man, this God man lived among us as the sinless one. Hebrews seven twenty six. for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And this man died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of mankind. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But the grave could not keep him. He rose from the dead on the third day, 
to give his people eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this Jesus calls people everywhere to repent of their sin. Mark 1.14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Acts 20.21. Testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this Jesus calls people everywhere and speaks through his, through his apostles to repent of their sin and then to trust in him alone in order to be saved. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Brothers and sisters, it is very important for us as Christians to have a sound biblical theology in our understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel is the heart of Christianity, and every text in the Bible points to it or some aspect of it. A biblical understanding of the good news should inform every sermon that is preached, every song that we sing, every prayer that we pray, every conversation that we have, whether it be with one another or when we are evangelizing. And I think Paul exemplifies this during his trip to Athens. So turn with me, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 17. The title of my message today is Proclaiming the Gospel to an Idolatrous People. What does proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ look like in a culture filled with idolatry? Starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or, an Im- or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out. From their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So Paul has left Berea and made the 200 mile trip down to Athens, leaving Silas and Timothy behind, but was awaiting for their arrival to join him. And Athens is a city of extremes. It had been the home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and other ancient philosophers. And the city itself was a showcase of past intellectual achievement. And for centuries, it had been the cradle for democracy and education. Rome respected Athens so much for its highly developed culture that it left Athens free to carry on her own institutions as a free and allied city within the Roman Empire. People from all over the world visited Athens as it was known for its many achievements. The people of Athens were hungry for knowledge. And they also had an interest in the spiritual. And even though Athens was perceived as a cultural center of antiquity, filled with incredible art and architecture, it wasn't the beauty, it wasn't the art or the history or the architecture that caught Paul's attention. In verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. With a Christian worldview, Paul saw the idolatry that was rampant in Athens. You know, when we become Christians, our entire outlook on the world begins to change. We may be able to enjoy many of the same things the world does, but we begin to view some of those things differently. We view the arts differently. We see them differently. We listen to music differently. We think about sports differently. We view ethnicity differently. We view life and death differently. We see the world differently because we filter everything we encounter through the grid of Scripture. Through the word of God. 
And that is how Paul viewed Athens. He saw a people dead in their trespasses and sins. He saw a pluralistic society that hungered for the spiritual and were creating idols to try to satisfy their appetites. So before his very eyes, he sees people exchanging the glory of the creator to bow to the created things. And and this impacts Paul. And, And this we see leads him to engage people and to engage the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's response to what he witnessed should make us long to see our neighbors and the nations turn from their idols and worship the living God. But the people of Athens were smothered by idols. And what Paul is experiencing here is not too far off from what we're experiencing here. We may not have carved images on every street corner in this country. But the hearts of the people in America are filled with idols. And they are being smothered by idols. And these substitute gods and functional saviors supplant the true and living God in the heart of people everywhere. The pursuit of success. Idolatry. People-pleasing, idolatry, the pursuit of higher education, that if you don't get your education, if you don't go to college, you're worse than anybody else, idolatry, sexual gratification, idolatry, pleasure, idolatry, food, idolatry, all-consuming allegiance to a sports team, idolatry. It's everywhere. It's even in our own hearts. We as Christians must ask God to expose the idols of our own hearts. And trust that he will help us. But it doesn't end there. We as Christians must lovingly point out the idolatry in our culture. So that the people may understand that pursuing idols will never satisfy the human heart. Psalm 16.4 says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Bowing to idols will only bring sorrow upon sorrow. And people, people desperately need the God who made them and who can redeem them through Jesus Christ. But the hunger that Paul saw in the people greatly disturbed him as he waited for his friends to join him. The Greek word there for disturbed means that he was distressed. Thares says he was irritated. He was aroused to anger. He burned with anger when he saw the idolatry that was so rampant in the land. So Paul's angered by the idolatry that he sees all over the city. The city was drowning In evil, thousands upon thousands of idols had been cut out into the public buildings, stationed along the streets, memorialized in shrines and in temples. One visitor to Athens once said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Everywhere he looked, there was a false god erected. And the people were being lied to by the enemy of their soul. 
He had blinded their eyes so they could not see. And so Paul experienced a mixture of righteous indignation about this uh, for the name of God and a broken hearted compassion for the people who worshipped these false gods. His motive was simple. A love for God and a love for his neighbor. And Paul is determined to plant gospel roots in this very spiritual and dark, idolatrous place. He wants to see salvation come to the Athenians. And he couldn't be indifferent to the sin that he was experiencing all around him. And we should never be indifferent to it either. We must engage. We must proclaim Christ and him crucified and him resurrected. And so Paul wanders the streets of Athens and goes to where he is most familiar, the synagogue in verse 17. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. He goes to the Jews. He goes to the people of his heritage and he reasons with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And as he is engaging them, he does it with love. He listens to their arguments. He hears them. He inclines his ear toward them. He's patient with them. He debates them with gentleness and compassion. He gives us a good example here. Go to those whom you are most familiar with. Go to your unbelieving family members. Go to your co-workers. You're familiar with them. Have lunch with them. And proclaim the gospel to them. Reason with them from the scripture. Engage them in love. Listen to what they have to say. Be slow to speak as they are speaking. And don't act shocked if they believe something contrary to what you believe. Because you will hear stories that are absolutely amazing and crazy. And your reaction can make or break a conversation. Don't act shocked. Hear what they're telling you. Be patient with them. They're blind. They cannot see. Proclaim the gospel to them with gentleness. Be gentle, yet bold. Be committed to truth, yet clothed with compassion. Twenty years ago this August, I was placed in the Lynchburg City Jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while I was there, I got sentenced to a year in prison and served three months on good behavior. But while I was there, I had just finished up one day 
a discipleship class. A whole bunch of guys had gotten saved while we were, while I was there. And I was discipling them daily. And I had just finished up discipling them. We met on beds and we, we had, there were, there were, I think 24 beds, 12 bunks in our cell. And my back was facing the entrance to the cell. And we had just finished up. And all of a sudden I heard all the other guys that were not part of our discipleship group laughing and looking in one direction. So I turned around to see what they were laughing at. And to my surprise, there was a person walking down the aisle with long hair, very nice long nails that were purple, and high heel shoes. And my first reaction was, surely the corrections officers must have forgotten to do a strip search. Because why are they allowing a woman in a man's cell? And then I realized this wasn't a woman. This was a man who wanted to be a woman. And I knew then that my reaction to this person would speak volumes because they expected me, even more so God, to meet this person with compassion and love and not laugh at this person. So I walked over to this person, to their bunk as they were getting settled, and I introduced myself. I said, hello, my name is John Reyes, and uh, welcome to our cell. And I put my hand out to shake this person's hand. And, you know, as a man shakes a hand, I'll have to do this. I put my hand out. Well, pretend you're me. Put your hand out. The person went like this. Hello. Very feminine, effeminate. Well, everybody started laughing, and I knew I could not laugh because it wasn't funny. And I thought, this person needs Jesus just like everybody else. This person is dead in his trespasses and sins and needs Christ. Now, I'm not a basketball player, and every week for one hour we were allowed to go outside to the courtyard to play basketball. So every week I would just take my Bible out and I would sit on the stoop and read my Bible while the guys all played basketball. Well, obviously Habiba, that was his name, wasn't a basketball player either. And so Habiba was sitting on the opposite side of the court just watching. And I thought, well, I'm going to go and sit with Habiba. I really don't care what people think if I sit with Habiba. I'm going to go and sit with Habiba. And so I went and sat with Habiba And I started talking to Habiba. And I started listening to Habiba's story. I asked questions. And I wanted to hear where Habiba was coming from. And so one of the questions I asked Habiba, do you consider yourself a male or a female? And Habiba said, I consider myself a female. I said, Habiba, what does God consider you to be? And Habiba just looked at me. Strangely, and I, and I went to creation in the scripture. I said, you know, in the beginning, God created. And God created you, Habiba, in his image and likeness. And you're trying to be something that you're not. God did not create you this way. And so when God sees you, he doesn't see a female as you want to be seen. You are born a male 
And that is how God created you. And one day when you stand before God, you will stand before God the way that he created you, not the way you want to be. And I was able to share the gospel with Habiba there in that courtyard. And Habiba listened. But I also listened to what he had to say. It was very important I listened and didn't talk over Habiba. And didn't wasn't quick to say, no, you're wrong. I wanted to hear his story. And I wanted to share with him the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus could set him free from his sin. Just like he set me free from mine. Just like he set you free, Christian, from yours. No matter what that sin was. Remember, our constant awareness of what Christ did for us on the cross prepares us to lovingly engage the Athenians in our lives. I went there remembering that I am a sinner, but I've been saved by a great savior and that I too am in need of salvation, was in need of salvation, just like Habiba is in need of salvation. And so as Paul is reasoning in the synagogue, his heart is breaking not only for them, the Jews and those devout people, but for the people of Athens. And he's compelled to go beyond the synagogue, beyond those he is most familiar with. Look at the rest of verse 17. It says, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Here the people of Athens mix and mingle. It contains everything you can think of this marketplace, shops and businesses, government, government municipalities, the arts. The marketplace was a place for everything. It was a public place. And Paul begins to dialogue with anyone who would talk. He takes his public Christian faith. He doesn't keep his faith in the closet. And he lives it out in the public square. He converses with the people there. He listens to them. He engages them. He hears them. He debates with them. He reasons with them with kindness. What are our marketplaces? The gas station? The doctor's office? The grocery store? Dunkin' Donuts? Starbucks, the bank, a sporting event, a street corner, getting where people are and engaging them. That is the marketplace here in America. And while people, and while Paul is there at the marketplace proclaiming the gospel, two groups of thinkers are attracted to what he's saying. And look at verse 18. He says, Uh, Luke writes, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul or with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So we have these Epicureans, these refined and sophisticated philosophers who believed a few things. They believed that everything that happened in life happened by chance. That death was the end of everything. And once you died, you became extinct and there was no afterlife for you. They believed in the gods, but that the gods had nothing to do with the world. They also believed that pleasure was the chief end of man, but should be sought out in moderation. 
just the right amount of sex, just the right amount of alcohol, just the right amount. Don't overdo it. And they championed the simple life. They were, what's a good word? Minimalists, if you will. Then we have the Stoics. They believed everything was a God and whatever happened to them was their destiny. Their mantra, if you could, if you will, was like, what will ever, what will be, will be. Just keep whatever happens in life, keep a stiff upper lip. And they sought to live lives of apathy and detachment. And we, we experience these type of ideas here in America today. People are always saying that all we can know is the here and now. Truth is never thought about in our country this, these days. Actually, it's stumbled in the streets and anyone who shuns evil becomes a prey. This is what happens in a pluralistic society. If it feels good, do it. I won't judge you and neither should anybody else. Americans don't think about the meaning of their existence, but only think about today and how they feel right now. Very few Americans ask where they'll be and what they'll be doing a hundred years from now. Pre-Christian Athens is very much like post-Christian America, filled with Epicureans and Stoics, filled with skeptics, uh, filled with name-callers, just like these two groups. Look what they call Paul. They call him a babbler. This word means a seed picker or a gutter sparrow or a bird picking seeds and grain. The word came to mean at that time someone who peddled others' ideas as original without understanding them. It was someone who borrowed an idea from here and borrowed an idea from there and took them all together and made one big idea. And really what these men were trying to do was insult Paul. Paul, who had the equivalent of two PhDs, he was brilliant. But we know that knowledge puffs up. And these were puffed up men. And they tried to belittle Paul and considered him to be unlearned, old-fashioned, all because he preached Christ and his resurrection. We are riddled with intellectual skeptics in our country. And what they need from us is to speak the truth, to proclaim the gospel in spite of their aversion to it. And when proclaiming the gospel, please don't ever forget to proclaim the resurrection. That is part of the gospel. If you take out the resurrection, you are reducing the gospel. That's called gospel reductionism. Don't do it. Because if you leave out the resurrection, where is Jesus? Dead in a grave. But he's not. You must preach the resurrection. I remember pastoring in a church in Dallas. And one young lady came up and said, I, I, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. So I walked through her the gospel. And the, kind, the, the part of the resurrection came up. I said, she believed in everything. Then it came to the resurrection. I said, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? She goes, that's ridiculous. I love science. There's no way that a man can rise from the dead. I don't believe that. I said, then you can't be a Christian until you believe that. And she said, what do you mean I can't be a Christian? I want to be a Christian. I said, well, then by faith, you must believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And she walked away saying, I, I, can't, I can't believe in that. And I said, well, then you can't call yourself a Christian because you're not. That's a hard message. That's hard to tell somebody who comes to visit your church. I said, you're more than welcome to come every Sunday if you'd like and hear the gospel. But you cannot be saved if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So whatever you do in life, whatever your job description, whether it be a parent or a manager or a waiter or a journalist, an artist, a police officer, a nurse, a doctor, a musician, and whatever it is, whatever your sphere of influence is, do not retreat from the culture, but engage it humbly, boldly, and intellectually. Paul's reasoning with the philosopher sparks their curiosity and they take him to the Areopagus. And we see verses through verses 1931 to 31, Paul is addressing the Areopagus. And the Areopagus or Mars Hill was responsible to supervise the education of, of, of the people and it controlled itinerary preachers. But it was also a place to discuss things. Now, the Athenians love to discuss. And they love to discuss new ideas. They loved new things. People today love new things. We wake up in the morning to check Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to see what is new in our friends' lives. We watch the news to see what's going on in politics and the world. And every day there's always something new going on. We like the newest clothing styles. We watch the newest movies. And those things aren't necessarily wrong. But understand this, that the gospel is an unchanging old message. It cannot be reduced, expanded, or updated. We don't need new stuff when it comes to the gospel. What we need is new life. We don't need new ideas about who Jesus was or who he is. We don't need new perspectives on Paul. Let us as Christians be careful then of overemphasizing new things or buying into the latest Christian fads touting a new revelation of this and a new revelation of that. The Bible is all the revelation I need. I don't need to read about someone's supposed revelation of hell or of heaven. And you don't need it either. This is what you need. This is sufficient enough. So Paul, Paul starts his proclamation with the creation account in verses 22 through 24. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious, for I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So Paul proclaims to them that it is God who made the world and everything in it. And in regards to the ideology of the Epicureans, Paul is stating here that God is not removed from creation, but is very much involved in creation. God's glory is revealed in his creation. Today, take a minute and look outside or sit outside all around you. 
You are surrounded by the glory of God in creation. There's no escaping it. One persecuted Christian once said to his persecutors, you can pull down our steeples, but you can never pull down the stars. The whole earth, the universe for that matter, is as one scholar wrote, a theater of God's revelation. And this God cannot be regulated to a building. He cannot be put in a box or restrained by the hands of men. Then in verse 25, Paul writes, or uh, Paul states, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the, the sustainer of life. He who created the world also sustains the world. If Jesus wasn't holding the world together, this world would fall apart. Be encouraged by that. God's got this. So God, being the creator, is intimately involved in creation, sustaining it moment by moment. Isaiah 42.5 states, Thus saith God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. Just, just to let you know, in case you don't, and you probably do, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's entirely independent. It is people who need God and are dependent on him whether we realize it or not. In verse 26, Paul continues his address. He says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So, so Paul goes on to say that God's independence does not mean that he is in disengaging himself from the lives of mankind. He is sovereign over people. He is sovereign over people's lives. He is sovereign over nations. He is sovereign over history. And he is sovereign over geography. He is sovereign over everything. And finally, Paul points out to the Areopagus in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. It was no accident that the Athenians were living where they were living. They weren't there to, due to some cosmic accident. God had structured their lives in order to attract them to himself. He created them and was seeking a relationship with them. Verses 28 and 29, Paul says, For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So what Paul does here, and he's a pretty smart guy, and of course, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit here. 
He's quoting from the Greek poets. Paul is pointing here or saying here that all people have intrinsic dignity. And because of that, men should refrain from worshiping idols as such. Worship is an insult. Idolatry is an insult to Almighty God. And and just a side note, this right here, what we're seeing or what we're reading is an example of God's common grace to the Athenian people. These pagan poets caught a glimpse of the intimate relationship between God and man. God was preparing Athens to meet him and was using their own poets to do it from years past. And what Paul also does here, and this is important for us, is to adapt his method of evangelism to reach different audiences. That's very important. He starts in creation to tell the storyline of the Bible. He realizes that the Athenians are biblically illiterate and doesn't speak to them in the same manner that he does with the Jews in the synagogues. He most likely didn't have to start at the creation account in the synagogue because the Jews had already known of creation and they believed in the creation account. But the Athenians didn't know. So in adapting this method of evangelism, what's interesting is he doesn't change or reduce or do away with the gospel. He just adapts to his audience. In evangelism, we must present the gospel within the framework of the larger biblical storyline. And we may have to, in our post-Christian culture, we may have to define terms such as sin. The world may not understand or know what sin is. It may have to be defined to them or the virgin birth. They may have no idea what that means or repentance using that term. They may not have a clue of what that term is. You may have to define it for them when engaging someone in our culture. We may have to begin sharing the truth of the gospel by anchoring our teaching or our proclamation in the creation account. Because it's absolutely foreign to many in our nation today. We must describe the nature of God. He is holy. He is just. And move through the biblical storyline. We cannot assume anymore in this country, that people know about God. We can't assume that anymore. We are beyond that now. That's sad. But it's a good hour for us, the church. Verses 30 through 31, Paul continues his address. He says, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men, all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here, Paul makes a call for them to decide something. In God's mercy, he didn't immediately visit humanity with judgment, with the judgment they deserve, eternal wrath that they deserve. 
But with the coming of Jesus, however, a decisive turning point is taking place in redemptive history. Now, everyone everywhere must repent or face God's judgment. Idolatry is sin. Repentance is the remedy for sin. And if a man sets anything above God as the object of his, his time, thought, energy, or life, he is worshiping the works of his hands and therefore degrading God and himself. Repentance must occur because judgment is coming. Mankind is not moving toward extinction as the Epicureans believed, nor towards absorption in the cosmos as the Stoics believed. Mankind is moving toward divine judgment and the judge is the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. If people repent, they will not be judged unto wrath. The appeal to repent in evangelizing is very clear and consistent with the scripture and is an aspect of the gospel. And it must be said. We must, while evangelizing, plead with people to repent, to renounce their sin, to turn from their sinful ways and live. If you leave out repentance, you're reducing the gospel. Gospel reductionism. Man is under the wrath of God because he has rebelled against him. But the good news is that if man turns from his sin, renouncing it and turns to Christ, his sin will be wiped out. That's good news. If you've repented, your sin no longer is held against you. Christ is your high priest. And he pleads on your behalf. You were bought with a price. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, guess what some did? They mocked. They mocked Paul. You'll always get some sort of response when you evangelize. Some will mock you. Some will laugh at you. They may be those who really do not care about the gospel. They could care less about their spiritual state. Christ alone for salvation disgusts the pluralist. You'll be considered intolerant if you were to quote Jesus and say that he is the only way to heaven. To even bring up the resurrection today will make you look like you're off your rocker. To tell post-Christian America that one day everyone will face King Jesus in judgment and will have to bow before him will make you the object of scorn. I remember I was evangelizing once and uh, I was talking to this college student from Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And she was just filled with mockery. And I said, you know what? Every day, one day, every one day, your knee is going to bow and your tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you like, like it or not. 
I pray you do it now and repent. And she had such an arrogant attitude. She fell to her knees and she said, strike me down, God, strike me down. You know, I <laughs> I moved quick out of the way because I was like, if he strikes her down, I don't want to get hit. But don't put the Lord, your te- the Lord your God to the test. But they'll mock you. They'll make fun of you. They'll make light of something very serious. Her soul was at stake. And I was pleading with her to turn from her ways. And she laughed it off and mocked God. The gospel is offensive. It offends many. It offended the Areopagus that day, and it offends many today. So you will have some that mock you, family members that laugh at you, think that you're crazy, think that you're nuts. But some may ponder the words, as some did there. They may ponder those words when they hear them from you, and they may think on them. And perhaps later the Lord will convert them. You never know. They may not receive, they may not repent there, but you never know, two years down the road, God brings back to their memory the gospel that was preached to them because they went away thinking about their sinfulness, and they went away thinking about the holiness of God and his love for sinful man and the cross. Still others, like the ones you see in verse 34, it says, but some men joined him and believed among and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So they heard the gospel these folks, and they received it. They repented of their sin, and they were adopted in the family of God. A member of the Areopagus gets saved. Damaris gets saved, and others get saved because the word of God, the gospel, was preached to them. They heard it. The Holy Spirit lifted their blind, uh, lifted the blinders off of their eyes that they could see their sinfulness and see the God of their salvation. Can God save people? Yes. Can God use you as a means to save people? Yes. Does God want to use you as a means to save people? Absolutely. He delights in using his church to proclaim his gospel to those who are familiar to us. To those who we do not know in the marketplaces of our land. And even to those who may seem a bit more smarter than we are. He wants to use us. He wants to use you. Think right now for a second. Just think someone you're familiar with. Someone in your, in your life that you're familiar with, coworker, friend, family member, who is not a Christian. Does a name pop into your mind right now? 
pray and ask God to give you boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to that person. Think of a person in your marketplace, at your gas station, your banker, your grocery store. Think of a person that you go to Starbucks, you go to Starbucks and you see that barista or the gym and you, you see somebody at the gym all the time. Does that person, does that picture of that person come to your mind right now? And they may not know Jesus. Scripture says that you're a living epistle written among men for the world to see. Living epistle. Pray to God that he gives you Holy Spirit boldness to proclaim, to reason with that person about Jesus. Think about someone in their culture that you might know who thinks he knows everything. Like an Epicurean or a Stoic. And it's pretty smart. Maybe he doesn't boast about it, but he's really intellectual or she's really intellectual. And that person is in your life. Somehow you've come across them. Does a person come into your mind right now? If so, ask God to give you Holy Spirit boldness to go and proclaim the gospel to that person. And don't worry if they laugh at you and mock you. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. They laughed and mocked at Jesus and the apostles. Count yourself in good company. It's okay. It's okay. Ethan, why don't you come up, brother, and pray for us. That the Lord will help us as a local church to do the work of an evangelist and to proclaim the gospel to those who are familiar to us to those in our marketplace, and to those who might we might feel are a little smarter than us. Amen. Well, can we thank God together for that word through our brother John? So much practical advice for us through the scriptures in that sermon, and I hope that you were blessed by it. Um, one, one statement that, that John made that really stood out to me was he said, Our constant awareness of what Christ did for us on the cross prepares us to engage the Athenians in our lives. Just such a great reminder to keep our eyes on the cross and let that motivate us to proclaim the gospel. The word of God says in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful that if we have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God, I pray if there's any there who, or any, any here with us this morning who have not yet turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus, that they would do that, that they would be motivated by the good news to trust in Christ. And Lord, would you motivate all of us as we dwell on the cross, to go forth and to proclaim the gospel to those 
Athenians in our lives, to those whom John was just calling us to remember in our minds, God. Help us this week to go forth with the gospel, to to proclaim Christ, to reason with people, and to do it with gentleness, yet with boldness. God, might you bring much fruit among us this week as we go forth and proclaim the gospel. God, I pray that the remainder of this evangelism series on Sunday mornings this month would strengthen us as a local church in our witness here in this area and then to the ends of the earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week, church, and go forth proclaim Christ.